Psalm 23, six verses. I'm going to read it through here. He's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Probably the most well-known psalm out there. Like many of us could quote it before we came to know Christ, right? We saw people in foxholes going, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me know. People in dangerous situations, in difficulty. We murmured it ourselves probably even before we knew Christ. We see it in the movies when people were in perilous situations. People say it and we say it in a moment of great need and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with running to God when we're in great need. But it's not some kind of talisman to ward off evil, right? And if it were all the truth that you knew about God, if what you knew from Psalm 23 were all the truth that you ever knew about God and his heart, it would tell you a lot about him, about his heart and about your part in the story. Incredible, incredible information that we have here. I shall not want, I shall not lack anything. Every time you feel lacking, you could come back to this and say, wait a second, God's told me that's not true. God's told me that's not true. Even when I feel like I lack things of him, usually it's lesser things that we're feeling that we lack. He says, no. Not you, not, not on my watch, not in my shepherding. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He causes me to do that. I, <laughs> when, I, when I read this, I think of an old uh, episode of The Little Rascals, the boxing one, right? All for the, all for the love of Miss Crabtree. And they're swinging at each other in the ring, and they're going... Lay down, because each of them thought the other one was supposed to lay down and give up the fight. Lay down, lay down. You'll have to see it to uh, really chuckle. But anyway, he makes me lie down in green pastures where he is leading you to a place of plenty. Beside still waters. Oh, no, it's, look at it out there. It's so stormy. Sometimes in our own hearts, a lot of times in our own hearts, incredible raging storm going on, often with a, a fine face, though. How you doing, brother? I'm good. The storm rages on, and he's leading you beside still waters. He restores my soul, that eternal part of me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake for our good and for his name's sake. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We're going to have trouble. We're going to walk through things that are difficult. We're going to, unless he comes, before it happens, we're going to die. But there's no fear for us in these things. There's no fear for us in these things. Amazing. You're for you are with me. When you feel the most alone, he's there. Your rod and your staff, they're not there to beat me, which is what we imagine often. They're there to comfort us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now think about that. Your enemies. They got to sit there while you're at the table And the Lord himself sets the table, brings the food, and they're all around. And they're like, man, God loves them. And we sit there so often feeling, God, do you love me? Do you care about me? Where are you? And our enemies, our real enemies, dominions, powers, and authorities are sitting around watching the Lord lay out a table for us. Amazing. Amazing. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, right? Not causing a stain on the table that you have to clean up. It's that you have plenty. You have plenty. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. You're leaving a trail. Right? And it's not a nasty slug trail. You're leaving a trail of goodness and mercy behind you because you have a good shepherd. You have the Lord as your shepherd. All the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's, that could also be, inter- forever could be interpreted as to the end of my days or for length of days. Well, guess what? If you've got eternity, it's forever. It all means the same thing. Surely goodness and mercy are going to keep on. And you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We could close up the book now and go home. There's more. We're going to go into the uh, into the backstory a bit today, and I found things that were great of great encouragement to me, and I hope you will find them to be as well. Um, turn over to First uh, Samuel chapter seventeen. <clears throat> How interesting that God would have David write this, and that it would become so popular. Our first introduction to David in 1 Samuel 17, he's not even present. David's not there. He's the one son that no one thought would be important enough to have available for this visit by the prophet Samuel. You guys, you know, stick around here. The seven, there's eight sons altogether. David's the eighth. You guys stick around. We'll see what the prophet's going to say. David, (laughs) you go take care of the sheep. 
And seven sons pass by Samuel, and there's a big enough pause for Samuel to say, is this all of them? Is this all the young men? Because God told me I was going to find his anointed here, and there's something I was to anoint him as king. Is this all there are? He's such an afterthought. Nobody's thinking, oh, maybe we should bring David too, right? And his father replies, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is. What is he doing? Keeping the sheep. David writes with some authority on being a shepherd and what the shepherd does for his sheep. Everyone else goes off to war, and actually there's not a whole lot of fighting going on. There's just some yelling from hilltop to hilltop when you get to this scene in, uh, in 1 Samuel 17, and there's taunting, yelling and taunting going on, Goliath taunting them. And it's funny how much, it's not funny, it's serious, how much taunting the enemy does in our lives to keep us out of the battle. How much taunting goes on? You don't have this. You're not smart enough to talk to this person. You can't understand the Bible. You shouldn't open your mouth and pray. It's going to sound dumb what you say. Your praise, nobody wants to hear that. Meanwhile, God has told us in Psalm 22 that he's enthroned on the praises of his people. Open your mouth and enthrone the Lord. Praise him. Praise him. Open your mouth. And we get taunted to keep us out of the battle. This music stand is driving me nuts. So I'm going to move it and get a different one. It just keeps going up and down. And it'll be a mess when we do the last song, but that's okay. So we're here in 1 Samuel 17 in verse 33. David has this exchange with Saul. The one Saul was a head above everyone else, right? He was chosen as king, and it says he was a head above everybody else. He was the biggest guy out there, and he's chosen as king, but he knew nothing of shepherding, and his focus was consistently on himself rather than on God. And they have this exchange in 1 Samuel 17. Starting in verse 33. You, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. For you're a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose again, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We have the truth of Psalm 23, but we get some color to the story here, an understanding of what's going on to make these things that we see in Psalm 23 true. The not lacking, the still waters, the ability to be without fear. When something comes against the sheep, life and limb are risked 
by the shepherd. When something comes up against the sheep, life and limb are risked by the good shepherd. Doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how dangerous, doesn't matter how far gone the sheep is. It's in the bear's mouth. (laughs) I rescued it from the lion's mouth. I didn't say, oh, that one's gone. And he doesn't say that one's gone about you. And he doesn't say that one's gone about the people you love. And he doesn't say that one's gone about the people you hate. And from the bear. You look at David compared to the lion or the bear and you say, that really took some bravery, right? There's a good chance he'd be injured or or killed. And there's no relationship like this for God. He can't be compared to something else to say it was really dangerous for God to rescue this or that person from any other entity. He has no equal. He has no equal. It's like when I tell my dog, drop it, right? If, if God comes up against the lion or the bear, drop it, right? Or our dog, you know, some, we have chickens as well. And he doesn't do this often, but occasionally I get excited and start chasing the chicken. And so I'm going to do this loud, so if you're sensitive to sounds. So we yell, no chicken! Right? We say that. And he, and he peels off, right? Jonesy, no chicken! And our neighbors must think we're nuts, right? Because they just yell, no chicken! It's not that often. Um, <laughs> and he stops, Right? And he he listens to me, and the biggest lion and the biggest bear, the most ferocious of them, if God said, drop it, they're dropping it. They're not like, I really like this, I want to chew it some more. No, they're going to drop it. So we think about that, you know, it was dangerous for David. How is this dangerous for God? We talk about, in, in, in my business as a financial advisor, we talk about the risks of investing money, right? There's systemic risk. That's when the whole system goes down, right? So that in 2008, 2009, that kind of happened. Whole system seized up, and everybody's investments went like that. Systemic risk. Inflation risk. We've all had that recently, right? Interest rate risk. As interest rates go up, existing bond prices go down. Reinvestment risk. Foreign government risk. As a side note, Unlike the fine print of investing, the past performance of God is indicative of time, right? Past performance is not indicative of future outcomes. All the fine print. God has no fine print with you. God has no fine print with me. God's past performance is indicative of future outcomes. And he's a shepherd. So it's a different kind of danger for God. He's allowing himself to be injured grievously, to be involved in shepherding us. God took on the danger of relationship, the danger of emotional investment, the danger of caring for a portion of creation, his creation that is all too often completely self-interested and completely self-absorbed. And time and time again, We say no. And time and time again, we are adulterous in our relationship towards him. And time and time again, we set up idols in front of ourselves. 
God shepherds us at great risk to himself. Don't ever think this is some simple thing for God. He's just twirling along, and it, make, it makes no difference to him. It matters not to him. It matters incredibly to him. There wasn't any danger too big for God to rescue us from the mouth of, so he gave in the only way that could demonstrate the level of his love and commitment to us. David knew a secret even as he squared off against Goliath. If you go down to verse 47, he says to Goliath, All this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands, not by sword, not by spear, but with great personal sacrifice that he would carry with him, it says, from the foundations of the earth into eternity. Not by sword or spear, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the striking of the shepherd, is how we would be saved. So who needs a shepherd? I don't know if it's a Disney version. There's some version of Peter Pan. There's a song in it, Who Needs a Mother? Remember that song? Who needs a mother? Anybody need a mother? We do. Who needs a shepherd? We do. That's how it goes. Remember it. Everyone. Everyone needs a shepherd. We're probably all familiar with Jesus' sentiment in Matthew 9.36. It says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? He went to each one of them and he put his arm around them and he said, Oh, woe is you. I'm so sorry that these things are happening to you. No, he didn't do that. He took out his magic wand and he gave them everything they wanted and everything they ever would want. They're harassed and helpless. I got to give them stuff. I got to fix everything here on earth for them. Mark 6.34 adds this, so I'll read it. I'll read it from the beginning here. Uh, Jesus saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Mark adds, so he began to teach them many things. So often when we're feeling harassed and helpless, we want stuff. We want it to end. We want understanding when we need teaching. There's something in our harassment and helplessness that we need to come to know, that the Lord wants to teach us in that thing. And we're so quick, we want to grasp that solution. What's the solution? What's the solution? Let's get past the feeling. How I'm stuck. And Jesus says, he does put his arm around you. And he says, I have some things to teach you here. And it's not because I dislike you. And it's not because of all the mistakes that you made that I have some things to teach you. I'm preparing you for eternity. I'm preparing you that goodness and mercy would follow you all the days of your life. I have bigger plans than you. Some of us 
would really like to teach others a lot of lessons. Woohoo! Shall I call down thunder from heaven, Lord? <clears throat> and Jesus knew perfectly what needed to be taught, and he didn't teach it because he was frustrated. A lot of the things we want to teach are because we're frustrated. Jesus didn't teach because he was frustrated. He taught because someone needed to hear what he had to say. I'll often start saying when, you know, so I got one of my kids in here, unless Bryce is laying down in that row. Oh, I see his, there he is. The head pops up. Uh, I got two of my kids in here right now. And I will, uh, I know that's surprising to you, um, but I get frustrated. uh, And it's uh, sometimes because they keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. We all know that frustration. Sometimes it's just because I'm already frustrated, right? And I'm reaching the point, right, where it's about to go, the steam whistle's going to blow. And I will start to say something like, I need you to. And every time I hear myself start to say it, I, I catch myself. And this is not because I'm good. It's just because... I don't, I don't need them to do anything. If I need them to do something, that puts an undue burden on them. God doesn't need you to do anything. How I react is how I react, and that's on me. I don't need them to do certain things. They may be better off doing certain things. They may live longer doing certain things both in that immediate situation and the rest of their lives. But I don't need them to do anything. Their actions aren't responsible for my reactions. Teach others, one, learn what Jesus is teaching. And then teach others because of their need and not yours. This idea of sheep without a shepherd did not start in the Gospels, though. Numbers 27, turn there. It's before 1 Samuel. Numbers 27, and we'll be in Brian. He's told Moses he's going to die, and so Moses says this in verse 15 to God. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep who have no shepherd. We know it from Jesus talking about sheep without a shepherd, but this sentiment has been in God's heart from the beginning to shepherd his people. Exodus 2 tells us how Moses tried to save the Israelites in his own power. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and he killed the Egyptian and he buried him. 
And then the next day he tries to break up a fight between two Israelites and they say, you're going to kill us too? Like you did the Egyptian. He didn't know that the secret was out and he flees. And where does he go? To Midian. And what does he do? What a surprise. God has him go to Midian to be a shepherd for 40 years. God uses shepherding to break the power of Egypt in Moses, to change his heart from being a man who was used to this great world system, this incredible empire that was out there, to become a man who would say, at the time of his death, please give someone to lead these people that they may not be like sheep without a shepherd. And who does God give them? Joshua. Which means the Lord saves, same name as Jesus, Yeshua. The Lord saves. There are pictures of Jesus all over the place. All over the place. It's not just the songs we sing at Christmas. He's all over the place. Go and find him. Uh, there. So I will say this quickly. Do not get God's desire for his people to be shepherded and to be shepherds. Don't get that confused with the excesses of the shepherding movement or discipling movement. That was, I'm going to shepherd you You do what I say because I'm listening to God telling you what to do. He's telling me through you. Come to me. We were, I mean, I didn't even know it at the time. That's what we were part of. That's what we came out of. Right? Now, again, I've told you guys, I got a lot of good stuff from that. And I learned what some things not to do. So God worked. Who was was really my shepherd throughout that time? The Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Like, I can barely say that, that the Lord is my shepherd. Like, I can't believe it, that that would be true of me. And all the stupidity that I've done, all the dumb things that I've been involved in, don't get that confused. The Lord is your shepherd. We need to look at Jesus' example of shepherding to understand that he wants to develop in us what it is that he wants to develop in us, the shepherd's heart, and what it is that he has for us. We've got a short list of that in Psalm 23. Who else needs a shepherd? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. First uh, and 2 Kings are right after First and 2 Samuel. This story is also told in 2 Chronicles 18. It's during the reign of Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. He reigned there from 874 to uh, 853. 553 would be a long time. To 853 uh, BC. And it relays this story of the prophet Micaiah prophesying to Ahab. 1 Kings 22. Now, 
I'm going to read the whole thing, so bear with me here, and I'll do it relatively quickly. It's not up on the screens. Uh, No, I don't. Yeah, I want to read 1 to 28. Sorry, not the whole thing. Now, three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, which means the Lord judges, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the Lord, word of the Lord today. So Ahab's ready to just rush in. Let's go, let's go. Jehoshaphat says, Let's pause. My people are as yours, my horses are as yours, but let's stop and talk to God about this. Usually a good idea. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and he said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Jehoshaphat's watching this whole thing go on, right? He's got 400 men. They're all saying the same thing. And he's feeling a little uneasy about what's going on. And he says, uh, is there not still a prophet of the Lord? So the king of Israel, Ahab, says to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may acquire of the Lord. But I hate him. The story is, is funny. I mean, it's not at the end, but it's funny. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Jehoshaphat said, hey, you shouldn't be saying stuff like that, right? Let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, sounds good, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, go, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Uh, Can you just say what everybody else is saying, please? Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your words be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? And he answered him, and I'm not sure he was only saying what the Lord said, but maybe. Got a little smart alecky here, and he said, Oh, go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. It's like, I know you're not going to listen to me, so I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear. Go and prosper. So the king, Ahab knows, Ahab knows, the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Micaiah tells him the truth in the name of the Lord. 
He said, I saw all Israel. This is Ahab's kingdom is Israel. Jehoshaphat is over Judah, the southern kingdoms. Ahab ruling ten tribes, the Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes to the south. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Then Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by. So God opens up what's going on in the spiritual realms and the heavenly places to Micaiah. And Micaiah says, let me tell you what's really happening here. Yeah. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster upon you. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. So the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison, feed him with the bread of affliction, and water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, if you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, take heed, all you people. So God looks out on this scene and he says, Micaiah prophesy to him because these people have no shepherd. Because they want no shepherd. They are scattered on the mountaintops, each one sacrificing wherever they want to sacrifice, not worshiping God. Ahab refused to have a shepherd. He'd hear things he didn't want to hear, but he wouldn't listen. How many times have you heard the word of the Lord? How many times have you listened and obeyed? Jesus, when he's talking about his own shepherding, would say, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Ahab heard the voice of God, but he wasn't going to follow. God's calling us to follow, to be sheep that would follow. 740 B.C., Isaiah In chapter 13, he's prophesying about the destruction of Babylon. He says, it will be like a sheep that no man takes up. In other words, it has no shepherd. It's at the mercy of everything around it. 597 B.C. is around the time when Ezekiel prophesies. In chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, it says, they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. 
My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. And then in verses 11 through 16, he will perform. You can write it down, Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16, and read it later. In 520 BC, around the time when Zechariah is prophesying, in chapter 10, he says, The idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. God has been talking about the need of people for a shepherd for a long, long time. We need to be under the shepherding of the Lord. So what does the world think of shepherds? Egypt, one of the first examples of the kingdoms of the earth, you know, these world powers that eventually come to nothing. Egypt, a place where God told his people not to rely on. He said it's a, it's a, a splintering staff. You lean on it, it's going to go right through your hand. If you rely on these things that are not of me, if you rely on the world system, which is not of me, he said don't go back there in Jeremiah. They tried and they got slain. And he would say, he would have his son go there and come out of Egypt. In Matthew 2, Hosea 11, and then also fulfilled in Matthew 2, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. Prophesied in Hosea 11, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. To reiterate that this world is not the place to cling to. And there's no power here worthy of our trust. We're told in Genesis 46, the Egyptians despised shepherds. The world system despises shepherds. The whole idea of what God wants to create in relationship with us is despised by the world. It has no interest in shepherding, only in devouring because the one behind it wants to kill and steal and destroy. And I'll have you turn there. We get a picture of this system. John, writing the visions that he had been given, says, Then one of the seven angels, chapter 17, verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus And when I saw her, John says, I marveled with great amazement. He has this vision of the the world system 
portrayed as a great harlot, it says it sits in verse 1 on many waters, and in verse 3 on a scarlet beast. It explains the beast in verse 8. It explains who the waters are in verse 15. And this is what I want to highlight. The angel says to John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. She, the world system, the great harlot, is shepherding any people of the earth that will come to her. Come on in. I'll be your shepherd. Look at me. Look how I'm arrayed. Pearls and gold and precious stones. This is what I'm all about. But her shepherding is the people of the earth, of every language, and she is reclining on them. She's sitting on them. Can't you just feel the great mass of the world system on you? It's palpable, the weight of her on yourselves and others. You feel it crushing you, this need to have and to get and to want and the dissatisfaction and the discontentment that weighs on all of us. This is the system of the world saying, come on, I'll shepherd you. I'll show you the way to go. Let's get rich. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. No, whoever dies with the most toys is dead. The system gives lip service to shepherding, but will always be interested in itself and not the sheep. I'm not talking about people here. I'm talking about what's behind them. I'm talking about the enemy behind them that sets up the system. All the people in the system trying to get power think they're going to raise up. They're, and they're going to get to the end. And, and these are the people we talk about, all these people, like they're the problem. They're not the problem. The problem is we have a shepherd and we have to listen to his voice. We have to recognize his voice and we have to be able to shepherd others as well. It starts in the garden. The serpent says, you will be like God. It's equality you're after. We hear that all the time today, right? Equality, 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 equality. And what it does is it produces discontent. I don't want anybody to be stepped on on behalf of somebody else. But it's, it's the harlot, it's the system that's telling us be discontent. That's not God. God is saying, I will bring you into relationship with me to raise you up. And you will be unequal in many things here on earth. But there are things, those are things you don't need. And the harlot says, oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. You see it in the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build a city for ourselves and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. I don't want a shepherd. I want to do it myself. I want to reach the heavens myself. I want to make a name for myself. I don't want to be scattered. I want to do it myself. I don't want the shepherd that God would give me. 
We don't need God. We can shepherd ourselves. And the harlot says, oh, yes, you can. And you're so comfortable. You're so comfortable for me to sit on. Keep, keep telling yourself you don't need a shepherd. Keep telling yourself you don't need God. The harlot, the world system, so deceptive. When John sees her, it says, when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. King James says, with admiration. With all the other things that John sees in Revelation, there's only one other time he expresses astonishment like this. And it's in chapter 15, verse 1. He writes, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I wonder if John, when he saw what was filled up, what was the wrath of God, if he said, oh, my Lord, that's what you took from me. And he was amazed and astonished. But the system, the world system, the Harvard is so deceptive that even John, he's standing there and he goes, wow, this is amazing. And we go, wow, this is amazing. I got to have some of this. I got to have some of that. There's an angel standing next to him and he smacks John up against the head and he says, why are you marveling at this? Why did you marvel? She's not amazing. She's horrible. She's horrible. And we buy in. <clears throat> I've got all the precious things, she says. And she's squeezing the life out of everybody. All this talk of equality is a big smokescreen. If you don't start with the understanding of your inequality with God. If you start from that point, then you have humility. Then you have contentment because godliness with contentment is great gain, and you're not striving and straining and trying to get for yourself. When you recognize first your inequality with God. All right, Zechariah 13, and this will be the last place I make you turn today. The truth. Zechariah is a little harder to find. Go to Matthew and then work back a little bit. Zechariah 13. just as Hosea 11, that scripture was fulfilled in uh, Matthew chapter 2, this scripture, Zechariah 13, 7, is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And in Matthew 26, Jesus says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. God in Zechariah 13 says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who is my companion. This word for com- this word companion is omit. Omit. And it's used a total of 12 times in the Bible. Once here, 
And then all the other instances of this word being used. You say 12, that's not so special. Why are you pointing that out? The only other place it occurs is in the book of Leviticus. All of the other 11 times that this phrase, that this word is used, are in the book of Leviticus. And here's what they are. Verse 6, Leviticus 6, 2, uh, neighbor. Most of these are talking about how you treat your neighbor. 18, 12, neighbor. 19, 11, teen, neighbor. 19, 17, neighbor. 24, 19, neighbor. 25, 14, neighbor and neighbor. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. 25, 15, according to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell you. 25.17. Therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And then finally in Zechariah 13.17, my companion. Talked about the beginning, right? God has no equal. But the sense of this word, if you look in Israel, they're talking about neighbors. They're talking about equals. They're talking about one another. And God says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my equal. The man who is my companion. Jesus, the man. Jesus, God, the equal of God, spoken about in Zechariah long before we get to the point of him being stricken. And God says, awake my sword against the shepherd, the greatest of all the shepherds, the companion, the equal of God needed to be stricken, that the wrath that John saw, the great and marvelous, not great in terms of good, but great in terms of volume, the wrath of God, would be poured out on his son on his companion. He needed to be stricken to fulfill God's promise to Abram and that all peoples might be blessed through him. So I'll leave you with one last thought today, just to feel that he's close. How aware are the sheep of the presence of the shepherd? They know he's around and they know his voice. And I think we need to grow in our awareness of the fact that he is present. Spending time knowing what he is up to helps with that. What is it that Jesus... So I'm in my situation, and I'm having a very difficult time. What's Jesus up to? Because I'm not feeling him. What's he up to? Well, as creation speaks day unto day, night unto night, we have his word, we have his spirit, we have other believers. What is it probable that he's doing when you're unaware of his presence, when you don't feel it, when you don't see it? Preparing you for eternity. You may say, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about my eternity. My situation takes all my energy. I'll tell you that if it's not your perspective, if eternity is not your perspective, you will be harassed and helpless. 
And the great harlot will sit comfortably on you, squeezing the life out of you. And she say, I'll give you relief. I'll give you distraction. And you'll be harassed and helpless if eternity is not your perspective. Remember, even John, he saw her and he said, Jeez, this is amazing. Such an allure to that. What else is he doing? Searching for someone who's wandered. Probably someone you love. What else is he doing? Preparing a place for you. My father's house has many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you it was. I will go and prepare a place for you. What else is he doing? Interceding. Leading you beside still waters, even though you're not aware of it. Making sure you lack nothing. Think about when you're in the midst of it and you think the Lord is far from me, think about what he is doing. He's helping Kyle right now, right? Because he doesn't have time for me and Kyle's situation is really tough. I'm making things up, Kyle. So this is not a personal revelation about Kyle. Or he's, he's doing, you know, things for the people that really need help, I guess, right? So that's kind of comforting. But he's not limited to them. Everything that you can think of that he'd be doing for others, even though you don't sense him, he's doing for you. Right then, right at that moment, when you think he's off far from you, all of those things he's accomplishing as your good shepherd. God's given us many pictures of the world system, and we ignore it at our own peril. And he's given us many pictures of our shepherd. And we can ignore that. We can focus on the wind and the waves also to our own peril. I'm going to have the musicians come up. And I'll attempt to rearrange.